0: Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us. Thank you for joining us on this day of worship and this Reformation Sunday. We're in a series on the first three books of, uh, or excuse me, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Talking about um, these seven letters in these chapters that were written by Jesus through his apostle John to the churches in Asia minor we come this morning to the 5th of or excuse me the 4th of those letters the letter to the church in thyatira you'll find that in revelation chapter 2 starting at verse 18 revelation's the last book in your bible you'll find that on page 1029 if you're using one of our pew bibles and with each of these letters in this series on Revelation, we're talking about, uh, well, the title of the series is called On Being the Church, talking about what it means for us to grow as this particular body of Christ's people, this particular church in this time and place, and, and what do, what does Revelations 1 through 3 have to teach us about that. In keeping with our musical worship this morning, uh, the sermon will be acapella, just so you know. <laughs> I know that will come as a great disappointment. Let me pray for us and we'll read together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, um, as always, people in need of your word. Would you speak to us through this scripture, which is your word? God, you love the church. It was your idea. And you died, Jesus, to purchase her with your blood. And so we want to know more of what it means to be a church that faithfully loves and follows and serves you. Would you... Give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear and a heart to respond. We ask that you do this by the power of your Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, you have not, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Uh, This letter to Thyatira is interesting in the in the midst of these letters here in Revelation because it's it's the longest of the letters, and um, at the same time, this is the church, the ancient church that we know least about as far as what Thyatira was like. It seems to have been somewhat, certainly a less significant city than some of the cities around it, who also receive. Letters, But there's a lot going on here. What I want us to see in particular, though, this morning, from the letter to this church in Thyatira, and it's issues that have been brought up in others of the letters as well, but, but simply this point, that God calls us, His church, He calls us to be a holy community. He calls His church, His people, to be a holy community. We're going to see that here in uh, the call to holiness we're going to see two challenges to holiness that existed in the church in Thyatira. And then finally, we're going to look at the fruit of holiness. First, the call to holiness. Look at this opening scene in verse 18. The picture that is uh, brought before our eyes of Jesus. Um, each of these seven letters opens with, with this very graphic picture of Uh, of who Jesus is. And all of these images from each of these letters come from John's initial vision in chapter 1. So he's, in each of these letters, he's reaching back to pictures of Jesus that we see in chapter 1. And what he brings before our, our eyes this morning is, in fact, the eyes of Jesus. Verse 18, "...to the angel in the church of Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze." He calls Jesus here the Son of God. And this is the only place in Revelation where that uh, term, that uh, title is used of Jesus. And it points to His majesty and His power. Something we're going to see throughout this passage. And here what what we're drawn to most though are these eyes like a flame of fire. And we're drawn to the power, the penetrating power of Jesus' vision. That He sees us. That He looks at us with His holy eyes. It is brought back up again for us in verse 23 in our passage. It says, Jesus refers to Himself as, I am He who searches mind and heart. That He is the one who sees and sees clearly. His eyes are burning. That in in Scripture, fire is often an image of God's holiness. Ezekiel 1, for example, the prophet Ezekiel, gets this vision of of these angels in, in, in the presence of God and he sees just this burning fire, this picture of God's holiness. Um, again, looking back to Revelation 1, the bigger picture of John's initial vision, he said this, The hairs of Jesus' head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The John is pointing us to this picture of Jesus' with these burning and holy eyes who sees us. And then the other part of what we see in this first verse is um, he, he has feet of burnished bronze. In his day and time, burnished bronze would have been hard metal. It would have been what you would look to if you want something strong and powerful. And when he sees this picture of Jesus with these feet of burnished bronze, he's saying, here is Jesus, the one who sees, and who ultimately one day comes in judgment. And he has these feet that will one day be able to crush his enemies. It's a um, eye-opening picture of Jesus. And I think what we're being drawn into at the very beginning of this letter is, is a foundational truth in Scripture. And it's simply this, that God is holy. That He is holy. Here's a working definition of, of holiness from Scripture. There, there are two senses of holiness. What, one is that hol- something that is holy is something that is set apart In some special way. It is somehow other. Part of what we confess when we say that God is holy, we are confessing that He in many significant ways is not like us. He is God and we are not. He is holy. The other part of holiness um, has to do with being pure, with being morally pure and faultless. Also true of God, He is holy in a way that we are not. And yet, as we're going to see, the Bible continually calls us as His people to also be holy, to be holy people. But it's something set apart and pure and right and clean. Um, in In the Bible, uh, for example, in the book of Leviticus, if you've read that, you, you've known that there, there are uh, purity laws in the Old Testament. There are laws upon laws that have to do with c- things that are clean and unclean. And if you've ever come across that in the Bible and wondered what's going on, you know, why is... Um, Why is lamb clean and and pork is not? Why is it okay to wear something made out of cotton or something made out of wool, but not a garment that's made out of cotton and wool that are woven together? These were some of the Old Testament ceremonial cleanliness laws for God's Old Testament people. And the point of those laws was to drive home to God's people time and again that God is holy, He is separate, and we are to be holy and separate. And He gave them these visual demonstrations of that separateness, that holiness, that holiness that apartness. And when people in Scripture come across God in His holiness and all its blazing glory, people are undone. It happens time again in the Bible. One place may be familiar to you, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is given this view, this picture of the throne room of God as God is in His glory on His throne. And, and Isaiah can only gaze as far as the train of God's robe that comes off. The throne, and he hears these angels crying out again and again, Holy, holy, holy. And as Isaiah sees this and hears this, he says, Woe unto me, I am undone, I am coming apart at the seams. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's the same reaction that John himself has in Revelation chapter 1 when he gets this very vision of Jesus. Revelation one seventeen says this, When I saw Jesus, I fell at His feet as though dead. He was undone by the holiness of His God. As we've said, this we're celebrating today Reformation Sunday, and one of uh, obviously one of the, the key figures in the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther spent a period of his life before coming to faith as an Augustinian monk, uh, well before he understood really the depth of, Of God's love. And it was through wrestling with the Bible that he came to this moment, this crisis, this period in life, a crisis of faith, because as he read Scripture, he saw clearly how holy God was and how unholy we are in our sin, but could not find the answer to how a holy God could even bear to have us in his presence. Uh, Martin Luther was known for spending hours upon hours in confession with uh, his confessor at the monastery. And you might wonder, I mean, how much trouble can a monk get into uh, locked away in a monastery? And uh, actually the story is told that his confessor really sort of felt the same way. At some point he turned to Luther and he said, look, when you've got a real sin to confess, then come back and talk to me then. But you see, what was happening in Luther's life is he was tormented because he, as soon as he started looking on the inside, he saw greater and greater depth of the ways that he did not match the holiness and the beautiness of God. And it had him undone. This question of how can we who are profoundly unholy be made right with a holy God? Because he knew what Scripture says, that we as God's people are in fact called to be holy. Listen to some of the ways in which this is voiced in Scripture. This comes from first Peter chapter one. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct, since it is written you shall be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians one four says this, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 5.27, Christ loves the church so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now when you think about that word holiness, what are the things that you picture? What are are the images that come to mind? Because I think we tend to think about holiness as somehow missing out. And we think about holiness that it seems to us that that there's something austere about it, uh, something prudish, something unfun, something lacking life. See, we tend to see holiness as defined by the word no rather than by the word yes. And we imagine that a life of holiness would mean that we would be uh, spending our life forever saying no to the desires of our heart. But I think a better picture of what we see of holiness in Scripture is that Holiness uh, actually is a matter of saying, of saying yes. Of saying yes to God and of saying yes to the life to which he calls us. Jesus has this, says this interesting thing in John chapter 10 verse 10 uh, that uh, comes back to mind for me often. He says this, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus said to us, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. If that is true and we are called to a holy life, then somehow those things are bound up together. That living a holy life is not one that a life that takes us away from the very heartbeat of what it means to be human, the very heartbeat of what it means to live a joyous life, but it's somehow bound up in that. We were created to reflect God's glory back to Him. When the Bible says in Genesis that we were created in God's image, it is to mirror Him, to reflect Him and His holiness back to Him into the world. That is fractured by sin. But one of the things that the Bible says is as God in Christ is is putting us back together over the long haul. He forgives us. He brings us home. And then He works out real holiness in our life. As He's doing that, He's uh, making us back again as to people who reflect His holiness. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. In Christ, we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. See, it's something that we are called to. And what the Bible tells us time and again about holiness is that holiness is something that is beautiful. It's something that's beautiful because it reflects the very character of God. Maybe another way to put it would be this. A holy life is a beautiful life, one that matches the very music of God. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I know that some of you may have had this experience that I've had. Let's just say your computer is open and the Internet's on and you're you're doing some work. And let's just say you get distracted by something on the Internet. Some of you weak-willed souls, Uh, you find yourself on ESPN, you know, you're checking the scores from the game that you missed, and uh, sports, you know, uh, those of us who are strong resist some such temptations, but we all have our own, right? Okay, so here's where I was a few weeks ago. Not sports, but I realized, I remembered that uh, Apple Computer was rolling out new, uh, something new that day, and Here's the thing, Apple. Uh, most companies, when they're gonna when they're gonna roll out a new product, they have like a press release. But at Apple, that is that's far too pedestrian for Apple. They have, you know, they have events to announce all that they do. So there I was working hard, and suddenly my computer's on, and I'm watching the live webcast of what's newest from Apple. And uh, here's what I saw. You guys are looking at me like I'm nuts. That's what does it for me. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> One of the things they, they roll out in their latest event is uh, this, this new line of uh, re- redone software of theirs, and, and the pictures and music and all kinds of stuff. And they have this program called GarageBand. Now, I am among the least musically capable people in this entire room. Uh, but when, when they started showing what GarageBand can do, you can record different instruments, you can create tracks, you can create sort of professional-level recordings. And as they're demonstrating this, um, I, I'm watching, and they have this... Uh, pianist there that's got a piano keyboard plugged into the computer. And what they're showing is there's the score for a musical piano piece scrolling across the screen. And as the pianist sees it, he's playing. And as he plays, all the notes register up on the screen. And as he's going and then once he's done, you can see every place where he missed a note or where he got off tempo, where he was, where he did not, let's put it this way, live up to the standard of the music that was there. Now, what we're going to talk about for a moment is this picture of God's holiness as the music that is put before us and the music that reflects who God is. And what happens as we play and we see those notes that are missed and we see where our tempo and our timing got off? Well, the Bible makes a very important distinction as we come to that question, and, and you need to hear this really clearly. Outside of the forgiveness that comes to us through Jesus, the difference between that musical score and our failure to play according to that standard is a picture of our distance from God. It's a picture of how we, and this is one way the Bible talks about sin, it's a picture of how we miss the mark. Or put differently, how we do not play according to the music that's given to us. And you can see on GarageBand all the ways that you have fallen short. Uh, It is a picture of how we see compared to God and His Word that we in fact fail, that we missed the mark, and we in fact are deserving of uh, His punishment even and rejection for our sin. And this is what Martin Luther saw when he looked at the holiness of God and his failure to live up to it, and he was undone. Now, what we see in the gospel is that there is one who does play the music as it was meant to be played. We see Jesus and his life perfectly matching the music of God's score. He is the one and the only one who never missed a note, who never played too fast, or too slow, who played, as he played, was not only technically perfect, but he brought out all the power and the beauty of the peace before him. You see, Jesus was holy, perfectly holy. Let me ask you this. Did this perfect holiness of Jesus diminish his life or fill it? If you read the pages of the Gospels, you see Jesus to whom people flocked because he had the very words of life. People who lost in sin, coming to him for forgiveness and healing and life. They came to him, this one full of life, this holy one. See, as we see this score of God's holiness played out in the life of Jesus, we see this holiness and living in line of it is what it actually means to be authentically and fully human. It is to live life to the fullest. And in Christ we see that his perfect performance is given to us. As if it were our own, it is credited to us. The gospel comes and says, His perfect life in place of your failing life. And this was the truth that Martin Luther discovered in the scripture, the heart of the gospel itself, that God does all that is necessary to take unholy people and bring them to Himself, a holy God. Now, as people in Christ, we come to that very same score, playing on that keyboard, and we continue to see... Those notes that are out of line, right? And the tempo that is still off here and there. But we can now see that for what it is. Not a mark of our condemnation, because Christ has paid that for us. But instead, we can see this as a picture of the music that is to be, that is beautiful, that captures our heart, that is meant to fill us with wonder and joy. And we can see now the process of God at work in our lives as His people, teaching us more and more what it means to play, and play beautifully, to actually hit the notes, to actually be in tempo. And so now as we step in and play this music, it fills us not with dread but with hope. God is the one who has his arms around us teaching us to play, to make something of his music, taking part in something of unutterable beauty and majesty, the beauty of holiness. Okay, that is what we are called to as a community, the holiness, even the holiness of God, the second thing we're going to look at here, though, are the particular challenges. There are two particular challenges that come up for the church in Thyatira. They're common to challenges that came up for others of these churches. And certainly, challenges that in a way could be, could be very real for us as well. Look with me in verse 19. Jesus goes uh, and does what he does in each of these letters, a- almost each of these letters. He affirms what this church is doing right, what they're doing well. He commends them in verse 19. He says, look, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. He is giving them real and extravagant praise. If you remember how uh, our series opened up, the very first letter is a letter to the church in Ephesus where Jesus says to them essentially this, you have been doctrinally pure. You will not uh, tolerate any false teaching, but I hold this against you. That you have forgotten your first love. But we see almost the opposite here in Thyatira. They have doctrinal problems, but what does, he, uh, what does he commend them for? He says, look, you do have love. And your latter works, they're even greater than your former works. He says, you, you are ramping up in this area. You are growing in love and in service to me. Yet at the same time, he also comes, as with all these, with Criticism. Verse 20, he says, Yet I have this against you, that you tolerate Jezebel in your midst. Okay, now Jezebel... was seemingly what's going on here is he's referring to an actual person, an actual woman, would be prophetess in their uh, community that is steering them astray. Her, Jezebel was not her real name. This is a nickname, a label that Jesus gives to her. And it is the name of an Old Testament queen. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 16 and following, King Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, takes as a wife uh, Jezebel, a, a, a woman from uh, the from the country of Tyre she is a non-Israelite and she comes into Israel and brings with her the worship of Baal the god of the people of Tyre and she sets out to wipe out the worship of Israel's god and replace it with Baal worship she has the prophets of God killed throughout the land you may be familiar with the story where there is a showdown ultimately between Elijah one of the few remaining prophets of God and the prophets of Baal and they set out two sacrifices and the prophets of Baal spend all day calling out to Baal to bring down fire from heaven to ignite the sacrifice. And um, the whole time Elijah's mocking them. And he, he actually says these things. He says, where, where, where's Baal? And maybe he went on vacation. And maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's in the potty. He says all of those things as he mercil- mercilessly mocks them. And when they finally give up in failure at the end of the day... He tells his servants to come and dump gallons upon gallons of water on his sacrifice. He calls out to God, and God sends fire from heaven and ignites the whole thing. A visual demonstration for them that Yahweh is Lord, that he is God, and Baal is not. But the worship of Baal in the hands of Jezebel, it was her design to wipe out the worship of God. Uh, So in the words of Scripture, uh, Jezebel is a picture of one who is bloodthirsty and evil. Um, Elizabeth and I were uh, about to have uh, another child, and so we spent a lot of time on Internet sites looking at baby names. And uh, when you go to one of these baby name sites, you can get the meaning of the name, and it it tells you where it's ranked in in popularity in the United States, like how many people are naming their child that. Um, And you wouldn't believe the number of names, the variety of spellings of names. Unbelievable. So I looked up Jezebel. It's the only name I came across where it said, this name is currently unranked. (laughs) Because no one is naming their child Jezebel, and this is why. (laughs) At least still in our collective unconscious as a society, we know that Jezebel comes from Scripture, and it is a picture of darkness run rampant. And so when Jesus looks at the church and He says, there is a Jezebel among you, He is saying there is something deadly, deadly in your presence. She claimed to be a prophetess, someone who spoke the very words of God, but she was leading the people of the church astray, away from God. And she's leading them into two specific sins that, again, come up in several of these letters. We're going to take a moment to talk about them. It says that she leads them into sexual immorality and to eating food sacrificed to idols. You'll see this in verse 20. These two particular sins are two ways that many of the people in this church in Thyatira had lost sight of the musical score where they were missing the notes, where they had gotten off tempo from God's holiness. Okay, the first of these, he says that they were eating food sacrificed to idols. Let me try to give some context for that. Thyatira, again, we don't know a lot about it, but it seems to be a city that was well known for its trades. Uh, Maybe a way to characterize it might have been it was a fairly uh, uh, blue-collar town, people working in various trades. There were weavers, there were cloth makers, cloth dyers, there were uh, metal workers, which might be one of the reasons we get this picture of the the burnished bronze. That would have made a lot of sense to a community of metal workers. Lots of these trades, and each of these um, trades would have had a trade guild, a trade association. Uh, and, and speaking of the trades, but one other place we hear Thyatira mention is in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi where Lydia, dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was converted and comes to faith. But these tradespeople would, would have been part of, of a trade guild and each guild would have had its own patron deity. You would have had the god of the weavers and the god of the bakers. And so for them, business was inherently tied up in idol worship. They would have had these periodic um, guild uh, feasts in honor of their gods. And part of that would be they would sacrifice meat that they ate at the feast, but it was sacrificed in honor of their god, of their guild. And you can imagine as people in Thyatira come to faith in the one true god, The challenge is brought up for them. The very first commandment says this in Exodus 20, You shall have no other gods before me. And so for the people in Thyatira coming to faith to reject these feasts and the idolatry of the trade guild, it would have had economic and professional ramifications for them in their town. When suddenly you don't get the business contracts. Suddenly you don't have the connections. Suddenly you don't have the ways for promotion and a way to move forward. How much easier it would have been to just listen to the voice of Jezebel. And we don't know exactly what her teaching was, but it may have been something much like this. Look, idols aren't real. You know, they don't have any real substance. There's only one true God. So it doesn't matter if you take part in these celebrations, these feasts in the honor of these patron deities, because there's not really any reality behind them. But Christ says, no. No. You shall have no other gods, even if having no other gods costs you. See, to participate in their day in these, uh, in the worship of idols then and now, it, and now betrays a divided loyalty. Because we belong to God and not to an idol. And we were redeemed by the blood of Christ, not that of an idol. We were called to live in service and love to Jesus, not in service to an idol. And so when they, in their culture, when they participated in these meals, the idea was that as you ate that meal together, that you were communing with your God, that you were connected with your God. And so for the Christians, they simply had to say if they are going to remain faithful, I cannot be a part of that because there is one true God. And we do have a meal of communion with our God, but it is not this meal, and it is not this God. For them, it would have been a dividing of their loyalty. And it's the same for us, too our own idols. Anything in our lives other than Christ that has captured the fundamental loyalty of our lives has become our idol. Anything that has the allegiance of our heart, that is the love at the center of our life, that is our joy, that is our effective Savior, the thing we look to to rescue us, our idols. And we are tempted to bow down in service to them as well. Now the second half of the way he warns them of where they have gone astray. The second thing is he speaks to them about sexual immorality. And it may be that the immorality that he speaks of here might actually have been connected with those idol feasts, that that, that uh, participation in that might have been a part of that very experience of worship. It often was uh, for them in their day and time. Uh, much of the pagan worship of their day involved temple prostitutes. And again, you can maybe hear the voice of Jezebel in the background. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with your body, you're a spiritual being. Flesh doesn't count for anything. Eating this food sacrificed to idols betrayed a divided loyalty a, a, a rupture in our vertical relationship with God would be one way to see that between us and God for those that would partake of these idol feasts. But maybe a way to see the sexual immorality that he's talking about here is that it brings a break horizontally. It brings a break in human relationship as well as vertically. It brings a break on the inside of us, and it brings a break for us with others as well. Because sexual immorality, as the Bible talks about it, it destroys our integrity. It literally disintegrates us. Now, you know, integrity can mean moral uprightness. Here's another way the dictionary defines integrity. The state of being whole and undivided. And... Sin in general, but certainly in some unique ways, sexual sin disintegrates us. It tears us apart. The thing that was meant to be whole is ripped apart. Paul says uh, this in 1 Corinthians 6. He, He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It says everything else you do affects you outside your body, but this somehow, this somehow rips you apart on the inside. Genesis chapter 2, in this initial picture of creation of man and woman and being given to each other in marriage, says this, that the two shall become one flesh. And sexual immorality causes a rending of this relationship, a terribly painful and destructive disintegrating Dismembering. Now, this only makes sense if you look at it in light of what the of the way that the Bible understands sex. And it is to be celebrated. It was created as something good and beautiful. You see the beauty of that in the beginning of creation. And the Bible, first to last, says it is something beautiful and true, and therefore it must be guarded. And cherished and used in the right ways. we have got an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, dedicated to the beauty of this. It's such an important part of married life that in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul warns married couples. He says, do not refrain for too long from having sex. It's that important for your married relationship. Uh, And the Bible shows us that sex is to be played out in marriage, lifelong monogamous marriage. That's what God's ideal was created to be. The Bible is very clear, let me say it a couple other ways, that sex is to be had only within the confines of marriage, the freedom of marriage. And that means there is be total abstinence of sex outside of marriage and joyful enjoyment of sex inside of marriage. But Jezebel, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Jesus says in response, it matters enormously what you do with your body. When he speaks of sexual immorality here, it's a Greek word, porneia, that, that, that involves a whole range of things. Um, it, it, everything that would send us off the rails. The wandering look. The unfettered imagination. Uh, the use of pornography. The addiction to romantic comedies where people have the perfect romantic life that you feel that you don't. All the ways in which we look outside of the relationships God has created for us for that. Jezebel calls this freedom. But Jesus had another name for it, verse 24. He says, no, actually these are the deep things of Satan. Go back to the garage band example and playing this musical score. Somewhere in here, Jezebel and those who have followed her have have not merely started to strike wrong chords and get off timing, but find that they are actually playing an entirely different score. And so Jesus' call to them, as we see here, is to repent, which is always the open door of the gospel come back jesus's love and forgiveness is big enough for all of this area of your life as for every other come and be reintegrated come and be forgiven come and be healed christ's grace is big enough for that but there's that warning there jezebel won't turn and her followers won't turn Okay, so those are two ways in which this church in particular in Thyatira is struggling. The last thing we see here is the fruit of holiness. The fruit of holiness. First, what happens when holiness is rejected? You notice there's some very strong language of judgment here. Uh, Jesus speaks about coming back and throwing the followers of uh, Jezebel into tribulation onto a sickbed that her children, not physical children, but those who have bought in wholeheartedly to her ways will be struck dead. Verse 23, Jesus says, I will give to you according to your works. Now what's going on here? Are we suddenly seeing a backtracking of the graciousness of the gospel and the goodness and forgiveness of Jesus? Not at all. We're seeing what the Bible says always tells us, and it is this, that the doors of God's grace and forgiveness are wide open. They can cover and meet you in the midst of any sin. But if that grace is rejected, if that grace is rejected, then there is nowhere else we can go to find forgiveness and healing. There is nowhere else. And so what he is saying to Jezebel and those who followed her, look, you have you are playing an entirely different piece of music. You are in the church in this town, but you are not following me. You, in fact, are not mine, and your works are demonstrating that. Jesus looks and says, your life is a picture of your lack of repentance, of your lack of a soft heart that would come to me and be forgiven. And so we see the picture in this church of what we see at the, uh, throughout Revelation, that, that one day there will be a day of judgment, and the burnished bronze feet Come down in judgment on all those who turn from Christ. But that is by no means where this passage or any other ultimately leaves us. That is true. But we are called to so much more. Because we see here too a picture of holiness that is embraced. As God's people turn back to Him. He even says to them, He says, There are some among you who have embraced this, but to the rest of you, to the rest of you, There are those who are looking to Christ and living by His grace and trusting Him. And He gives them a picture of a life that is strong and beautiful and whole, that is increasingly lived in line with the music, the holy music of God. And we see that just hinted at in a couple ways. One, here He says, to the one who overcomes to conquer, He says, you will be given the bright morning star. And you think about the beauty of the stars and the visual picture of that Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus Himself says, I am the bright morning star. You hear what He's saying? Those who look to Me, find Me, have Me, always the bright morning star, the morning star that brings light and life into your life and into the plane of your music even now. And this is what Luther discovered. As he came upon this passage that changed his life in Romans 1, verse 17, how can a holy God... Be reconciled to an unholy people. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that is when the lights came on for Luther, when he realized that he had been seeing God's holiness from the outside. And when he sees it from the inside, putting his faith in Christ alone, he says, "...the righteous live not by their works, not by their goodness, not by their ability to achieve, but by faith in the One who has done it all for them." And he saw the beauty and the majesty of Jesus laid out before him as we rightly look back to this recapturing of the gospel, it is what God has done for us. He's brought life to us. He has brought this beautiful life of holiness to us. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's where we're left as well with this bright morning star. The one who is our Savior. The one who has us even in our struggle right now. But as we look to Him, brought into this beautiful piece of music, our playing somehow mysteriously drawn in to what God is doing. And it's not just us alone that we are brought as a church in this together. This piece of music is actually a symphony that He is weaving with His church, with even us, the beauty of this song of holiness. As we said at the beginning, we see here that God calls us as a community to be a holy community. And that, brothers and sisters, is a very good and beautiful thing And He will meet us there as we look to Him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would give us a hunger and a thirst for holiness. A holiness first that we receive from You because of Jesus. But may we as followers of You love holiness lived out in the nooks and crannies of our lives. That they might be beautiful. That they might reflect Your music. That they might show the signs of Your goodness and grace. And that it might be a testimony to the world around us. May we see that life in its fullness is to be lived in You. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Holy One. Amen.